All right, uh, Bo and Katie, today we're bringing in the big guns because we've got joining us in the studio today, Pastor Ross Anderson. Ross, for our li longtime listeners to the podcast, uh, Ross was uh, really the co-host for the first several months of this podcast. We're bringing him back in because today, guys, we want to talk about misreading the Mormon story into the Bible. There are several passages in the Bible where Mormons, Mormon missionaries will pull some some text and say, this is talking about Joseph Smith, or this is talking about the Book of Mormon. Now, this is new to me, by the way, guys. And so I think it's going to be new to, our, to a lot of our non-Mormon listeners. So it'd be good for them to pay attention to this. But I think it'll also be good for our listeners coming out of Mormonism to try to understand these passages more biblically. And so, Bo, what we're going to do here is we're going to we're going to set up the topic or we're going to set up the passage and have you explain it to us. Like, how would you have, how would you have explained this passage when you were a missionary or when you were a seminary teacher in the Mormon church? And then Ross, we're going to bring you in then, and we're going to have you explain how that's really proof texting that, that what they're doing there is they're, they're reading a presupposed conclusion into the text in each one of these examples. Sound like, sound like good ground rules for where we're going today. Sounds great. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. We're going to start with Ezekiel 37. Bo, why don't, why don't Bo or Katie, Katie, why don't you read the text in the King James? Let's use the King James here. And then Bo, you explain what Katie is reading and how you, how you would teach this, I guess, to a potential convert into Mormonism. Okay. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. All right, perfect. So I would use this scripture all the time on my mission to, to try and teach um, investigators of the LDS faith that the Bible actually prophesied about the Book of Mormon. Um, now the history behind this is is interesting, right? So I would I would go into the, the idea that that Joseph taught and that the Book of Mormon infers that the Book of Mormon comes from the descendants of uh, Israel, the, the children of Israel, right? And that Ephraim, the the tribe of Ephraim, is where the um, where the the family of Lehi, the family of Nephi, were descended from, and uh, sorry, guys, that's <laughs> for, for our listeners. That's from the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon came from this family who traveled from Jerusalem across to the American continent, and they kept a record of it. That record was buried and then found by Joseph Smith through an angel. He translated it into the Book of Mormon. Okay, here we go. So the Book of Mormon comes from this uh, tribe of Ephraim right? Which is the claim of, of Mormons. And so uh, in this passage, it says that there was a stick of Judah, which is the Bible in Mormon's interpretation, and then the stick of 
Ephraim, right? Um, which is again, the, the book of Mormon. So, uh, from a Mormon's view and what I would teach on my mission is that you have the Bible, the stick of Judah, and you have the book of Mormon, the stick of Ephraim becoming one in your hand. And, and at the time I had a quad and we've talked about the quad before, but that's the Bible and the book of Mormon in one scripture, right? So I would hold that quad up in mm. my hand and I would say that the prophecy has been fulfilled. We now have the stick of, uh, the stick of Judah and the stick of Ephraim in one right? Basically trying to show that, right, the, the, that it was now fulfilled, the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah. Now, if we want to get into the 12 tribes, we can. The Ephraim is a, was the descendant of Joseph, right? Uh, and Manasseh was also of Joseph. So we, you have Ephraim and Manasseh anyways. Uh, that's why I'm saying Ephraim, but hopefully that makes sense. So you're, what you're doing here at this point is you're opening up to Ezekiel 37, which again, for people who don't know, that's in the Bible. That's in the actual Bible. And you're, t you're, pulling, this, you're pulling this obscure reference out, because honestly, like I'm a seminary guy, like a Christian seminary guy. I've studied the Bible my whole life. When you, when you explained to me the stick of, when you said something the other day about the stick of Jude and the stick of Joseph, I'm like, what are you talking about? So clearly to me, this is somebody I'm sure, I don't know if it was Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or someone later, I'm not sure if you even know who originally came up with this. Was this a Joseph Smith thing, a Brigham Young thing, or a, few, or a later prophet? But somebody was probably reading this in their Bible and said, wait a second, this sounds familiar. And so I could see how you could be creative as a Mormon to draw some conclusions here. And maybe someone says, oh, it's right there in the Bible. That makes sense to me. And I wonder if if this might push a few people over the finish line for potential converts. I mean, did you see that it, that it did, or did you have a lot of people yeah. pushing back on it? No, it, I mean, it's hard to push back on an obscure passage like this mm -hmm. when I'm so emphatic about what it's actually teaching. And I'm, right. I, I actually go into the interpretation of it. Right. So yeah. as a missionary, I would say, Hey, look, the, the word stick um, in, in the Bible actually is referring to a scroll. Right. Uh, okay. And, and so I, I would actually say like, hey, the, this scroll of Judah and the scroll of Joseph becoming one in your hand, right? That the record of Ephraim and the record of Judah is now the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And so I would, I would go into it and I, there, there are plenty of Mormon um, apostles that have spoken on this, like in conference, mm. uh, general conference talks, et cetera, that actually go into that interpretation. Now, I don't believe that's the correct interpretation. In fact, I don't think stick translates into scroll at all. And we can get into that, but that's how I would teach it on my mission. And, um, it was actually fairly compelling, especially just given how firm I was on, on the translation yeah, of it right. and on the interpretation of it. Yeah. And you're a good sales guy. So I could see you, Bo, I could see you <laughs> holding up that quad and say, here it is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, right in my hand. I mean, again, for somebody who doesn't maybe know how to study the Bible, they don't know how to do good biblical interpretation. I bet you that would be pretty convincing. And so pastor Ross, help us now to understand, is this a misinterpretation? What's going on here? Yeah, so it actually is. I believe it's a misinterpretation. And what we want to do is kind of like show our listeners, you know, maybe some tools for how to interpret the Bible and how those tools might apply in these particular cases. And so I'm looking for three things. I'm I'm looking for when I'm looking at the 
a, a biblical passage. I want to look at the actual language. You know, what is the precise things that are actually being said? Because you can you can kind of play with language. You can expand the meaning of language and uh, according to what you want it to say. And secondly, I want to look at the context. What's the historical context? That's ha- what's happening in that time that the that the author is addressing, and also what's happening, you know, in the rest of the the verses before and after the verses we're looking at, and even in maybe that whole book, and put it into a larger context of content as well. And then I'm I'm interested in asking what's the author's original purpose and intent. So why was the author in this case Ezekiel? Why was he writing this? And does any is there an interpretation that kind of fits with what he's trying to get at, or is there an interpretation maybe if it if it kind of takes it in a different direction than the intent of the whole chapter or whatever, then then you maybe be a little bit suspect. And so, um, you know, Bo mentioned the idea of the word, the Hebrew word. If we just talk about language, the Hebrew word really doesn't that's used there really doesn't mean scroll. Okay, so now this is not easily accessible to just everybody and opening the opening the Bible and King James Version and it you don't know what the Hebrew word is. But there are resources and tools. And this is where more modern language translation, if you put the English Standard Version or the uh New International Version, or whatever, next to the King James Version, you can see, oh, okay, that that help kind of makes it more make sense. The Hebrew word for stick that's used there, it literally means just a wooden stick or a timber. And the word, that particular word in Hebrew language is never used to, to, to mean a scroll. So that's that's a particular thing. You go, oh, what does the actual word mean? And then you look at the language, the actual wording of the passage. God says he's going to join Ephraim and Judah and take these tribal groups and make them into one stick of wood or in, in his hand. But it doesn't say anywhere that he's going to join two scriptures into one. Specifically, He's saying these two groups of people become one stick. And so, and that's pretty clear in the language. He's talking about a group of people, not necessarily a scripture that's associated with a group of people. And so, and then I was thinking about the, just the actual language. Um, I'm thinking that, you know, um, the LDS interpretation <clears throat> seems to be a pretty um, weak attempt um, to make, the, make this work for the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon represents Ephraim. But if you look at some of the commentators who have written about this from the Mormon point of view, that like one seminary manual that I that I looked at said, uh, many of those who kept the records now contained in the Book of Mormon were descendants of Joseph, who was Judah's brother. So wait a sec, many of the people who kept the records might have been like they were, so how does that represent this whole tribe or this whole representation of that tribal group? If, if there's a bunch of people that maybe they fit in, maybe they don't. So I, I think that when you look at it closely from the language, you're going like, oh, mm, maybe not, you know. So and then there's context and and author's intent as well. But we can get into that in a minute. You guys have any um, comments or, or questions about what I've just said? Yeah, that's that's super interesting, Ross, because, you know, I as as a Mormon growing up, you just aren't um, you have no idea that any other type of way to read the Bible or study the Bible or interpret the Bible is even available to you. And so you really rely on the words of modern prophets with, with passage passages like these. Um, and, and it, it, it can be problematic for someone that's trying to study the Bible and trying to, to make sense of 
passages like this. So what you end up doing, unbeknownst to you, to, to you is, is proof texting. You end up just reading your truth into the Bible, right? And since I have a Book of Mormon in my hand, I read as if there is a Book of Mormon being pros- prophesied here, right? And so, so for myself, you know, I, I ended up teaching this to countless people on my mission. And um, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, as someone who studied the Bible my whole life, this interpretation was never really available to me because of how focused I was on the Mormon view. Um, and to your point, a fairly weak one, when you actually look at the context, when you look at the, the meaning of the, of the scripture, when you look at, you know, the, the groups of people that it's writing about. Um, now, as a missionary, I would have went one step further, right? So I would have, I would have been teaching about this, and I would have taught you about Ezekiel 37, and we would have talked about the, the two sticks from heaven. If, if there's any scripture mastery people out there, Ezekiel 37, two sticks from heaven. That's how we memorized it, um, getting ready for our missions. And, uh, but I would then take you to like Isaiah 29, and I would also take you to John 10. So these are all scriptures where I would kind of link these together to kind of encourage this type of conversation. Right. So, Bo, let me just, I want to make this clear for our listeners. So, this Ezekiel 37 interpretation wasn't just something you came up with. This was something that you were trained to bring into your missionary discussions. So, so for anyone who's out there getting ready to meet with a Mormon missionary couple, they're, they're, they're potentially going to be bringing this very passage up to them. If you ask them, where is the Book of Mormon prophesied about, this is absolutely the scripture that they're going to share. Okay. Yeah. So, Ross, let's go to, you, 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 you said strike one is language. So, it, it doesn't, Ezekiel 37 doesn't pass the language interpretation test. But what, the second thing, the second strike is context. What's the context for Ezekiel 37? And how does the Mormon interpretation fail on this point? Right. The historical context is Ezekiel's writing at a time when the nation of Israel has been torn into two parts, and even more so uh, when those two parts, the North Kingdom, the Southern Kingdom, they're all taken into exile. And so that informs kind of what he's getting at here. He's getting at a time when these uh, scattered tribes will be pulled back together again. And that becomes really clear, again, in context, that becomes really clear in verse 22. Uh, Verse 22, we know pretty much exactly what the prophet's talking about when he's talking about the two sticks. Because verse 22 says, I will unify them into one nation on the mountains of Israel. One king will rule them all. No longer will be divided into two nations or into two kingdoms. And so it says, look, this is what the prophecy is really about. It makes total sense that these two sticks represent the two, um, the two nations, and they're going to be united. That's his main idea. And that leads us to, that's really closely related to the author's intent. So the original author is trying to give hope to the exiles of Israel. He wrote to declare that these tribes would be restored. And so the idea of joining two scriptures supposedly associated with these two groups, that's not really relevant to what the author's trying to get across. It doesn't really Mm. add anything to his intention, especially if it's the fulfillment that the Latter-day Saints envision, because the joining of the Bible and the Book of Mormon into the LDS script, into the quad, as Bo mentioned, that seems kind of remote and kind of irrelevant to the big idea that Ezekiel's talking about of one nation of Israel being reunited under one king. That doesn't really add anything to the point he's trying to make. So there's a little bit of kind of context and the author's intent kind of pulled together in that way. 
So would you recommend a bow? I mean, from your vantage point now, do you think it would be good then for if, if I'm meeting with Mormon missionaries and they want to bring up these verses? So again, we're looking at Ezekiel 37 verses 15 to 19. Like Ross said, if we just if we just lovingly say to the missionaries, hey, let's read a little bit further. Let's get a little more context, which by the way is a great Bible study principle is just get some more context. So let's read a little further. And like Ross said, we just, we, we say, obviously the context of this is not, it's talking about the divided nation, Northern kingdom, Southern kingdom of Israel. And it's, it's like many of the prophets at this point in Israel's history, it's talking about the potential, the eventual reunification of Israel itself. Like, I guess maybe the question is how would, I don't know, how would, how, how do you think maybe a missionary would respond to that saying, let's read more, let's get some more context. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the the best way to handle it because what you don't want it to turn into is a Bible bashing session, right? Where you just go back and forth, and, and there's uh, everybody just gets firmer and firmer, digging their heels into their side of the the fence, right? Like it's not gonna you're not gonna accomplish anything. And so, but but doing it that way, saying hey, let's let's read a bit further, let's get, gain a little bit more context together. That's what's gonna help um, open these missionaries' minds to the broader picture and, and really to the the true interpretation of the verse and, and, and the, the passage of scripture. Okay. So that's Ezekiel 37 and Bo, like you said, that's a big one. That's one that you would have memorized and shared a lot of times. Another one is probably, I think a little bit less obscure. Maybe you wouldn't use this as much on your mission. I'll let you answer that in a second, but it's Isaiah 29, but it's another example of sort of cherry picking some scripture and saying, Ooh, let's read, let's read some of the some more of the Mormon story into this passage. And so Katie, why don't you read why don't you read verses three and four for us first? And we'll pause for a second. And and Bo, you can explain how maybe a Mormon missionary or seminary teacher would 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 teach about this being a prophecy, I think, about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And I will camp against thee roundabout and will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and thou shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Okay, so this is something that I would read on my mission, and it's something I would teach in my seminary classes, actually, when I when I taught seminary for the Mormon church. So yeah, I, this is, it's a passage that's I guess a little bit more obscure. It's definitely not one that I would just immediately go to, but it is a scripture that I think it's important to to uncover because it is one where, you know, Mormons point to to say, hey, that's see, that is a prophecy that the Book of Mormon would come forth out of the ground, right? As a voice from the dust. So that's kind of the interpretation that Mormons place on it. So I have my my King James Bible that's like the LDS edition, right? So I have like the LDS footnotes and stuff. So I was just looking through it and it actually has a reference to the Book of Mormon. So if if you look in verse four, right, it says uh, that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground. That footnote points to the Book of Mormon and says it's a prophecy of the Book of Mormon. So in in my Bible, the mm. Bible I grew up reading, even though it's the King James Version, when I go to the footnote, it's proof texting for the Book of Mormon. So, so growing up, I just immediately thought, there it is. There's proof the Bible is prophesying of the Book of Mormon. 
Mm. Okay, let's pause here. And there's going to be more from Isaiah 29. But Ross, let's pause here and help us understand then what, why this is a misinterpretation of the Bible. Yeah, again, language, context, and author's intent. So the, looking at the particulars, if you really, if you break it down with any passage of the Bible, you want to look at the, any verse, you want to look at what does it actually say? You know, so, so the question I ask in verse 4 is, he says, you, you will speak. Who is he talking to? Who will speak? And based on the preceding verses, it's speaking to the people of Jerusalem. But it says specifically, it speaks of their voice, their voice which speaks and whispers. It's not talking about words that are in written form as found in a book. It says more like the speech of a familiar spirit. A familiar spirit in, in, in the King James language, that refers to a ghost that's conjured up by a medium. And so I'm not sure why, you know, a modern day religion would want to like run with that um, unless, unless mm. you're a spiritist. Um, but, but he says that the idea is specifically looking at the language, it's, it's an audible voice and it's not a written book. Then looking at context, the context is the destruction of Jerusalem. Back in verse one, Jerusalem is called by the name Ariel. And so these verses are part of the section. The first four verses describe the nature and the extent of God's judgment. And it's not until verse five that the subject changes to the promise of deliverance. And then there's some further judgment going on, the overall tone of the chapter's judgment. So verse five, um, so verse four, I mean, is part of the statement of judgment, which what that suggests is that what's describing here is how far Jerusalem will fall. And so it's kind of, I think it's describing their lowly condition, like they're buried under the rubble of the destroyed city. And he's so he's saying that this voice that's speaking up, you can kind of barely hear it. It sounds kind of like a ghost, that that's how bad off it's going to be for you. Nobody will be able to hear you. Nobody It's as if you're speaking from like underneath the, the earth or from under a grave. So I, I think that the context and the actual language um, su suggests that this, this really isn't about um, if it's a, if it's a, a judgment then to take verse four as promise that the writings of these people would be received in the future by other centuries ahead, that's not doesn't seem consistent with the author's intention of describing communicating judgment. So that those are the things that I would look at. So again, it strikes out on all three language, context, and author's intent with a little bit of study. And even just reading from another translation, like you said. Ross, you know, the NLT talks about your voice will whisper from the ground like a ghost conjured up from the grave. Again, it's it is kind of striking to me that they would appeal to that as a as a proof text for the Book of Mormon, especially if, you know, Joseph Smith or Brigham Young did this back in the in the mid 1800s, I think especially in that time I would I bet you a lot of Christian apologists or Christian pastors in that time, if they were to, were to hear this, they would have thrown a flag at this right away. But probably today, Bo, you're meeting with somebody, you're, you're again, you're just kind of cherry picking this, these verses. Maybe you just had come from Ezekiel 37 and, and the, the investigator still isn't certain. So you say, well, let me show you some more. So you open up to some more scripture. And again, you're pulling it out. You're reading it from the King James, which I think is hard enough to explain as it is. And maybe you're going to get people saying, okay, okay, I'm listening, keep going. And then when you keep going, 
you might get to Isaiah 29 verses 10 to 12. So Katie, why don't you read those to us and then Bo explain how how you would, again, just kind of pile on to what you would have just done with your misinterpretation of verses three and four. For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed the eyes of your prophets and visionaries. All the future events in this vision are like a sealed book to them. When you give it to those who can read, they will say, we can't read it because it is sealed. When you give it to those who cannot read, they will say, we don't know how to read it. And Bo, this one's interesting because this is the one where you get where I think where the missionaries might get really specific and start telling some of the Mormon story, the origin story, right? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, we would we would actually point to a church history story, um, and and we would we would reference this story all the time, right? Because when uh, when Joseph uh, was was trying to kind of well when he was translating. Uh, again, this is Joseph's claim that he was translating the Book of Mormon from this ancient uh, golden record. Um, they they wanted to get some some validity to to the translations. Um, so they basically, you know, took these reformed Egyptian hieroglyphs, uh, jotted some of those down, and took them to you know a re- a renowned. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of this person, Charles Anton. There we go, Charles Anthon. Ross, you might be able to tell this story even better. But so, they, so they go to Charles Anthon um, to basically try to validate, you know, the, the, the translation of these of these reformed Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, and Charles Anthon actually asks to to see. Well, this is this is where the story kind of goes off the rails a little bit. I think there's a few different versions of it. But Ross, let's let's hear your version. Well, the the vision, the version I remember is that well, this is maybe. Martin Harris, who did this for Joseph Smith, he wrote this version, the, the official accepted version, many years later. And so I think he's interpreting yeah. a lot of things. But so he said he went to Anthon and Anthon said, here, let me look at that. And oh, and, and he and he actually uh, tran- he translated some characters, according to Martin Harris. And he said, these are these are language, whatever. And then he gave him the uh, a, a signed document, sort of a certification that to Harris to say, yeah, this is what I said, you know, and, um, and so Harris is getting ready to leave and Anthon says, wait a sec. Um, tell me, tell me more. And Martin Harris tells him, he says, where'd you get these? Martin Harris tells him, oh, these are, he tells the story of Joseph Smith and the unearthing of the book of Mormon. And Anthon goes, whoa, what? And he says, can I have that signet that, uh, signed th- uh, document back? And he tore it up. Okay. When he heard that mm-hmm. it was this quote, supernatural origin of the book of Mormon, he 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 tore it up. Now Anton wrote about this in his own perspective, and he denies any of that. And um, and so so the two different perspectives are uh, pretty different in terms of what is going on here. But if you see, if you have the idea of um, taking this these letters from the Book of Mormon and taking them to a, a learned person who says, "Oh, I can't read it." Um, that's where the connection to uh, Isaiah 29 comes in. And yeah, definitely. And there was actually a version or sorry, a portion of the golden plates that were sealed, right? So Martin Harris even goes as, as far as to say that he, that Charles Anthon said, I can't read a sealed book, right? Mm-hmm. When he asks to read more and, and Martin Harris says, well, a lot of it's still sealed. And he says, Hey, I, I can't read a sealed book. So uh, again, I, who knows what version of this story is is accurate? Um, uh, I think when you look at 
the modern Egyptologists and the work they've done on the Pearl of Great Price. I think we know how that all ends, right? Mm-hmm. So right. Um, we can have an idea. But uh, but this is definitely something, again, on, on my mission and, and with my seminary students that I would that I would reference. I would reference this story, the fact that Martin Harris went and, and got a, a signature that was then torn up. Um, but, it, but again, it was for, for a lot of Mormons, the, the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 29. Okay, so Ross, let's go back to your three things, language, context, and author's intent, and apply it now to Isaiah 29, verses 10 to 12. These verses, you know, that again, a, a Mormon missionary would say this is talking about of this future time when Martin Harris would go to Charles Anthon and see, look, here it is again. So how would you, how would you answer that if you're sitting there talking to missionaries? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to look again at the language, the specifics of language. There's not so much here that's so very definitive because he's talking about this sealed book. That's clearly symbolic of something. And what is it? Well, it's symbolic of, of what in the King James version is called the vision of all. Um, and so I look at that and to put that into the context and say and say Isaiah is giving this vision of the destruction of Jerusalem, and um, and leading up to that, all of that is the context of this chapter, and and this particular incident it takes place within that. And so I'm saying, well, this this vision must be referring to um, what Isaiah is talking about right then and there, and so it shows it coming to a learned person and an uneducated person. In verse 11, 12, and neither one of them apparently is able to read it or understand it. It doesn't really say there, if you look at the direct language, that the unlearned person is able to read it. It doesn't really say that. That's an interpolation from out from the outside uh, ex- presuppositions. And then in context, you know, verse 10 speaks of prophets and leaders having their eyes closed. That's, and, and LDS people would say, well, there's the great apostasy. There's some apostate Christian world centuries later. But in the context, it's again, it's referring to the judgment on the people of Israel. And so it's not how to, to, to suddenly take a left turn like that and introduce some concept from hundreds of years later um, just doesn't make any sense. And so the sealed book that refers that, to the vision of Isaiah, it seems like he, it's a specific message that he's giving to Israel in that generation. That the vision of judgment and the and the deliverance that will come is sealed, meaning that the ignorance of the people is so great that nobody can understand the truth. Not a learned person, any more than an ignorant person. And so, so that's I think how we maybe use some Bible study tools to think about what's going on here. Now, it's it is an obscure passage for sure, and the more obscure it is, then the easier it is for someone for some other group to take it and invest their meaning into it. Because it's not so so obvious or so clear to us in our English language understanding, but there's still some headway we can make when we consider you know language context and et cetera. Well, I think it's interesting. Yet yeah, it is very obscure. Again, I've read Isaiah many times, the whole Bible many times. I'm a student of the Bible, and this is still also new to me. But the very next verse, Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, is a is a very famous verse. It says, and the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. I've, I've preached on that many times. So, you know, right next to this obscure verse that they're using to proof text and read their Mormon origin story into is a verse that is, oh, just so powerful. Jesus himself quotes it. And, and so I think it's just a good lesson for everyone as you're reading the Bible. 
make sure you're reading it in context and um, just beware of proof texting. So, I mean, you, you mentioned reading a couple verses more that the, the Mormon church actually does teach that, that verses 13 and 14 is speaking on the restoration of the gospel. It's actually interesting wow. because hmm. uh, a, a marvelous work and a wonder is what's said in, in verse 14, right? Hmm. And, and that is like a very popular Mormon verse, Mormon scripture, right, Katie? Oh, yeah. There was like a whole book series written on that, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, there was a, a, a movie series, right, yeah. called Marvelous Work and a Wonder. And anyway, this passage of scripture says, you know, I will proceed to do a marvelous work uh, among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. Well, the interesting thing is what's referenced in my Bible in the footnote, again, is the Book of Mormon, a, a prophecy fulfillment of the Book of Mormon. So, yeah, it's it's interesting how much proof texting I did as a youth, not realizing it. Um, because it's just, that's what was in my, um, my King James Bible. So what, how would they, so help us understand when, when it says these people say they're mine, they honor me with their lips, would they say that's talking about the great apostasy? Is that how you, is that how the more, maybe the Mormon study Bible would teach that? Yeah, it is. So it's actually in verse 13, the reference is to the apostasy and the hard heartedness of the, of the people, et cetera is uh is a reference to the apostasy now again in mormonism and for those that have listened to this podcast we've talked about this great apostasy where there the mormons believe that there was this big falling away from truth god's power was lost from the earth and it had to be restored by the prophet joseph so in verse 14 mormons interpret verse 14 to to, to say that god was going to restore his truth through the book of mormon um in the latter days so yeah but it's interesting because I was re as you were explaining this a few minutes ago, I was reading ahead and I read that and I I tried to read it with my Mormon goggles on. And I I I thought to myself, I wonder if they like you said, Ross, that that they kind of read the apostasy, the great apostasy into these passages. And so it's not surprising to me that that's kind of how they did. I think if you're I think if you're aware of the tricks, again, it's proof texting. You're you're coming to the text with a preconceived notion. And again, it's not just Mormons who do this, by the way. I think Christians can even sometimes do this um, to, to kind of get the Bible to say what we want it to say. So I think it's a warning for everybody, but especially for people who are coming to this, who are investigating whether Mormonism really is legit, I think you should really consider that this is pretty sketchy. You know, it, I mean, these both of these passages are failing in language, in context, and in author's intent. and. And then we have one more. And this, this last one is the, the, actually the only one that I had heard of. I hadn't heard of Ezekiel 37 or Isaiah 29, but I've heard of this one because this is from Jesus himself. It's John chapter 10 and starting, it's, well, really just verse 16. Katie, why don't you read it from the King James Version? And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So, so this one is, again, I, I would, I would, grab Ezekiel 37 and then Isaiah 29 and then cap it off with John 10, right? To, to say, look, there was this ancient record that needed to be brought forth and it was prophesied of by this prophet and this prophet. But even Jesus himself said he had other sheep that he needed to go preach the gospel to. Those other sheep were on the American continent, right? At that time. And, and we have a record, a physical record of 
Jesus's dealings with those people. And that's what the Book of Mormon is. That's what it testifies of is when Jesus died and was resurrected, in his resurrected form, he visited the Americas and those prophets on the American continent wrote that story down. And that's what we have in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, is that, and for people who aren't familiar with the Book of Mormon, so is that, does it actually have quotes from Jesus in the Book of Mormon? Totally, yeah, yeah, So, So in 3 Nephi chapter 11, which by the way, if you're ever, if a missionary ever knocks on their door and they give you a Book of Mormon, they're going to tell you to read 3 Nephi 11, because that is Jesus's visit to the Americas. Um, He goes through the Beatitudes, he he basically gives the Sermon on the Mount, um, and there's there's plenty of anachronisms <laughs> in, right. in that which we've covered on a different uh, podcast episode. But but yeah, so so again in John ten, um, I would say that hey, Jesus said he had other sheep. His other sheep were on a different continent. He visited those sheep, and we have that record in the Book of Mormon. And then I would say, will you read Third Nephi eleven and pray to know it's true? Right. Mm. Okay. So let me. Okay. So this is so good. This is good for our listeners. So you're saying you've got you've got Third Nephi eleven open in in you know marked in your quad. Then you've got John ten sixteen marked in your quad, and you're saying, "Look, this is what the Bible is prophesying about, and it's all right in here." So you've gone through Ezekiel thirty six. Maybe you've also covered Isaiah twenty nine. Now you're kicking it off with the words of Jesus, the words in red itself, in the Jesus himself. And so again, I could see honestly, like I could see how. Uh, a casual Christian. I could see how uh, maybe someone who was raised in the Bible Belt that doesn't really know the Bible, isn't really genuinely a follower of Jesus, could fall for this. I mean, I, I, I totally could see this, but I'm having a hard time seeing someone who really knows the Bible, like falling for this, probably. But anyway, we can maybe cover that in a second. Ross, how, maybe just let's pause here for a second. Let's go back to the interpretation. Let's look once one more time at context language context and author's intent. Yeah, the, there's not a lot of, of language here that's not pretty specific, but he talks about sheep. He talks about a fold, talks about there became, becoming one. The, the thing to understand partly here is that Jesus used this word sheep consistently to refer to Israel as God's flock, so that he never talked about Gentiles as sheep at this point, or never talked about any other you know, group of people or whatever as sheep in in this flock, and so. Um, but one LDS author that I that I've looked at recently talks about how um, the other sheep here he says referred to uh, referred to um, the separated flock or remnant of the house of Joseph, who six years six centuries prior to the birth of Christ had been miraculously detached from the Jewish fold in Palestine. And so, uh, and so taken to the American continent. And so the idea of sheep, but Jesus used the word other sheep, not of this fold. Th- th- there's a sense in which um, if the Book of Mormon story is true, then, then it would really be the same fold, the same flock. It would be the same. It'd be, it would be Jewish people. The uh, Book of Mormon people are descended from the Jewish race and so forth in, the, in their story. And so the Book of Mormon peoples would technically, I think, they would be the same flock. And so this is, I don't think that Jesus is talking about a physical, necessarily a separation. There seems like there's something else going on. Now, that's not purely definitive, but there, but it suggests that there's something else going on. The context in the whole Bible, the Old Testament, 
foresees the Gentiles coming to God. There's plenty of prophecies that the Gentiles will, you know, through Israel, where they come, they'll come to a, a knowledge of, of God, their creator. The New Testament makes that explicit in many different places. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how through the blood of Jesus, the two are made one, and both are reconciled together uh, before God. And so, and so that, that larger context is all about Gentiles, which that's why the traditional Christian understanding of John 10, 16 has been that the other sheep, the other, that are a different flock, kind of like that, that's the Gentiles, and he's going to bring them in. They're going to become part of his sheep. And we see that actually happen. So there's the bigger context of the New Testament is that, is that there's a story going on that actually makes sense out of verse 16. Verse 16 makes total sense in light of this larger story. And then the, the immediate context in terms of um, what John records or what the gospel writers record people who have heard Jesus and saw him speaking, if his disciples heard this statement, they would have been with Jesus. They would have seen Jesus interacting with non-Jewish people. There's a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. There's a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus because her daughter is uh, possessed by a demon or needs healing, and that's Matthew chapter 15. And, um, and, and, and Jesus says, wait, I, I have to talk to the Israelites first. She says, well, I hey, even the dogs get some crumbs off the table, so help me out here a little bit. And he says, okay, your faith, you know, he, he commended her faith. And so the original hearers of this statement would have seen all of this interaction taking place and would have maybe connected the dots themselves to say, oh, wow, Jesus, there's something going on here that refers to the, to the Gentiles. And so those are some, some, maybe some ways to understand it in terms of the larger context of the whole New Testament and the whole Bible. Yeah, I think that's huge because, again, I think to, to read the Mormon misinterpretation into this verse, like, really misses so much of the story of not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. The whole prophecy, you know, when, when God told uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to make you into a great nation and, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. That's a, that's a promise that God was going to bring in to the fold of the people of Israel. He was going to, at some point in human history, he was going to bring in Gentiles into the fold. So it, it actually makes me frustrated for a Mormon to read Mormonism into this verse instead of reading what, what God's intent, talk about author's intent, God's intent is to invite Gentiles into the fold. So if, I, if I'm sitting there with a Mormon missionary, I'm going to just, honestly, like I'm going to, there's all, all these verses I'll go to in the New Testament that talks about the, wall, the dividing wall being separated. And, and like you said, Ross, all these verses from John where Jesus is interacting with Samaritans and even with Gentiles and, and how Jesus is clearly like paving the way. And then finally in the book of Acts, and we see all these places in the book of Acts where, where the gospel goes out to, uh, to, the, to the nations, where Peter has this vision of this sheet coming down and, and, you know, the voice from heaven says, go ahead and eat everything. He says, no, never, you know, because he's thinking about his fold and he's thinking about Jewish rules and kosher laws. And, and, and God says to him, don't call something unholy that I've called, I've called holy. And he's not talking about the food. He's not talking about the pork and the lobster. He's talking about the people. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. The intent here is God's intent. Jesus is God. This was his plan all along. And to read in some 
some lost tribe of Israel that has come over to the Americas is is not just inaccurate. It's actually misleading, and it's missing the whole, like a huge portion of the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that God would bring Jews and Gentiles together. It's it's been so interesting over the last you know year year and a half um, of, of KD and I's journey, you know through. Uh, through the Bible and, and reading it really for the first time with new eyes, right? And and stuff like that jumps out at you. And, and it's like, man, I studied the Bible my whole life. How did I not see it, right? And I've asked myself that question several times over this last year, year and a half. And, and what you just said, I think, is exactly it for me, right? Like, I was missing the broader story. I was missing... I was missing Jesus in the pages because I was busy proof texting Mormonism into the story of the Bible, right? And uh, you know, it was, it was funny. So, so Katie, she she whispered to me as you guys were talking. I don't know, you know, throughout this, she she said, "Oh, I forgot about all of this." She, but but she was like, "Oh my gosh, like this this brings back so much, right?" What what were you thinking about? You know, as you were kind of listening to, you know, what what we used to believe in and what we used to read into, you know, the Bible. I was just thinking about how much this is for a Mormon who's grown up, just pretty true blue Mormon. This is this is taught to you from a very young age. And this this kind of stuff is not just proof texting the Bible. It becomes sort of like cultural folktale as mm. well. It becomes something that's like part of your heritage. So Mormons also get placed into a tribe when they receive a patriarchal blessing. So, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things that um, not only are you are, as a Mormon are you proof texting the Bible, but it's but the proof texting is done for you in your own Bible, and then it's done for you by your superiors, by your parents, and then it's part of just folklore, you know, and it's part of just the whole Mormon story and the whole Mormon story, unfortunately really does mislead Mormons away from Jesus's true mission and the true gospel message of the Bible. And so I've been asking myself, like, how did I miss it? You know, cause I loved studying my scriptures and, and really this is how, this is how I missed it uh, all those years. Um, was I was looking for for Mormon in the Bible when I should have been looking for Jesus, and so that that really is it for for me. And and um, this has been eye opening, you guys. I I actually didn't expect to have like this kind of an aha moment, just barely. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I appreciate it, Ross. I loved um, your explanation of language, context, author intent. Like those three things are critical in in understanding the Bible. And and you know whether whether you're new to studying the Bible whether you're studying it now for the first time with new eyes or whether you've been studying it for years, those, those things obviously are going to lead you to a, the, the correct way to, to study and interpret the Bible. Okay, so today we, we looked at these three passages where Mormons misread the Mormon story into the Bible. But next week we're going to take, I would say probably, Bo, would you say these are even tougher passages? But we're going to, like, it's like misreading Mormon theology. So this is all about Mormon, the Mormon story you know, some of the characters in Mormonism and, and the Book of Mormon itself and and sort of proof texting it and dropping it into the Bible after the fact. But next week, we're going to look at like 1 Corinthians 15, 
baptism for the dead passages. And we're going to look at how Mormons have taken, not Mormons, but how I think some Mormon teachers, Joseph Smith, maybe Brigham Young, probably mainly Joseph Smith, have ta- have sort of cherry-picked some scripture to create Mormon doctrine that is so far afield from Christian doctrine. So I just encourage everyone to join us next week because we're going to dig a little bit deeper into how Mormons misread scripture.